Thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. Our group is self-supporting through the seven traditions, so if you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating. You can do this with either Venmo or PayPal at New Life Speakers. Links to these can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org, or you can use the link in the description. We greatly appreciate your generosity. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can also be found on our website. Again, that's newlifespeakers.org. And if you know some people in need, please share this with them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe. I'm thinking I'm an alcoholic. I always tell people don't clap because you haven't heard it yet. Wait until the end. Um, It was told to me early on that my job when I speak to anybody at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or in the setting is to share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and to share my experience, not what I think everybody should do. Um, I'll start at the beginning, I guess, this time. Um, So I was born and raised in Reading. Um, Both of my parents were recovering alcoholics. I got an older brother who was an active alcoholic for most of my life and and still has been off and on. Um, He's 13 and a half years older than me, and I'm 42, so you can do the math. Um, Both my parents were treatment counselors. They both worked. My dad worked at Karen Foundation for close to 20 years. I grew up on top of the hill in and out of that place. Um, Worked in the kitchen for most of high school and even after high school for a period of time. Um, So I was raised around and in the lobbies of the meetings. I was the annoying little asshole that was just running around, coming in, screaming and yelling, playing with toys and doing all the rest of the stuff when I was little. Um, And a couple of things came about from that. One was I thought it was normal not to have alcohol. Like I I grew up with it kind of being demonized in our house. Um, There was always people at our house. The other thing my parents did was they started a private practice out of our basement at our house down in Wilmersdorf. And um, so I spent years just surrounded by therapy, surrounded by AA, surrounded by Karen Foundation. Like it was always there. Um, the byproduct of that as well was there was always drunks in my house. Crazy, just alcoholics coming for psychotherapy, coming for treatment in my parents' private practice. Um, constant screaming and yelling all the time. Um, because one of the things that they did a lot of was trauma work. So I got to listen to people just, I walk in the door with friends after school and you just hear someone screaming their head off in the basement. I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're, we're leaving. Um, and I didn't, I didn't realize until years later because it seemed normal at the time, but that, that fucked me up. Um, listening to that most of my childhood, you know, it was normal. And I found out years later, it wasn't normal. You know, I got some, I, I had to listen to that shit for a long time. And it got to the point where I was like 30 years old in therapy, wondering why when, whenever anybody started screaming, I'd freak out. Um, you know, it's, it's shit that manifests in weird ways, but I can tell you guys, all of that stuff has absolutely nothing to do with why I'm an alcoholic. Um, so long story short, you know, I had friends as a kid, I skateboarded, um, was always out. I come from the generation where you, you got up, you walked out of the house at 7am. And if you came home when streetlights came on, you won't end up on unsolved mysteries. It was pretty simple. Like it wasn't, everybody has to wear a helmet. I need to know where you are at all times. You have to have a cell phone. Um, it was, you know, you saw your parents when they got home from work usually, or when you came home later that night and they didn't seem to be worried that you were dead. So, um, 
which I, I wonder how kids get away with drinking and using nowadays because it seems like everybody's got a freaking homing device on them. But back then it was, it was pretty simple. Um, I huh, started having a lot of issues in school early on. Um, of course, with some of the stuff that was going on, looking back again, hindsight's twenty twenty. it's pretty understandable as to why, but I was started getting into fights. I was good until fourth, fifth, fifth grade. And then my grades always, I had a hard time with because I'm, I had a lot of learning disabilities. I had ADHD. I had all the typical stuff that you hear nowadays. And, but when I was a kid, it was, there was Ritalin or you were just fucking dumb. And, um, for early childhood, I fell under the category of he's fucked up. And I heard that a lot. Teachers, principals, there wasn't, oh, we'll get you an IEP and we'll help you and we'll do this and we can get you therapy. It was sit down and shut. I got my head dented into lockers by a couple of teachers because if I didn't sit still, that's what happened. Um, and that was what I went through for years. And it got to the point where I was, I was, and this is before I ever even drank and used, because again, I grew up and it was demonized in my household. Like I didn't, I didn't want to, I thought it was wrong. Um, but I, re I just remember being miserable. I remember being scared a lot. I remember struggling all the time. I remember hating going to school because I just didn't seem to be able to pick the shit up like the rest of the kids did. Um, it was just, it was tough. I hated it. Um, you know, my mom was severe bipolar, borderline personality disorder. Um, ultimately ended up ruining my parents' marriage, cheating on my dad with another guy in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, who I still see to this day. Don't really talk much, but I still see the guy. Um, my dad was just, was a screamer and, and liked to yell a lot. That's what I remember when I was real young. Um, and that's changed, you know, he and I have a great relationship today, but you know, it was, you know, a lot of that stuff in hindsight, having done the step work, having done the work, a lot of that was a reaction to my shit too, you know, and I'm not letting them off the hook, but that shit doesn't run me today. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but, um, so fast forward, school was pretty much just a jumbled mess of fights, um, constantly in trouble, started getting detention and suspension all the time. Um, you know, it got to the point where I just wouldn't go to detention, wouldn't, you know, would cut school instead of going to suspension. And then I'd go in the next day and I'd get more detentions, more suspension. And it was just, you know, I didn't care. I just, I didn't give a shit. I, I worked myself to the point where I never did homework. I never did any type of schoolwork. Um, I would go into class. I would put my head down and pull my sweatshirt up over my head and go to sleep. And if the teacher woke me up, I'd freak out and throw chairs and, and just lose my shit. Like I was nuts. Um, I got institutionalized the first time at 13 years old. Um, that was my first psych ward. 15, most, most of the year after I had my 15th birthday, I spent time, I was locked up in a psych ward most of that year. I was investigated by ATF for some shit that happened. I was just constantly out of control. Um, by that point, I was using. And to qualify, um, the first time I drank, I was 14. Um, and of course, it was the creepy dude that lived in the apartments behind us in the new development that we lived in. The guy that was like 21 years old and he's fucking cool because he rides BMX bikes with all the other kids. And, and in, like looking back now, he's a creepy ass 21 year old hanging out with a bunch of 14 year old kids. Like what a turd. Um, but he would buy us booze. He would get he would get everybody booze, you know. Um, 
And I, you know, wanted to fit and wanted to be cool. And I drank for the first time over at his place. He was having a party and it was like, you know, all the older dudes that he rode bikes with and BMX and did all that shit. And me and a bunch of, a couple of friends. And I felt horrible. I didn't get drunk. I felt horrible. Um, and I was in like, I remember that whole summer. It was like June of that summer and I drank and I felt horrible and I felt like I betrayed everything I grew up with and, you know, didn't want to tell, I was afraid to tell my parents and yada, yada, yada. And I finally told my mom like a month and a half later. And the relief that I felt telling the truth about that was kind of a repetitive cycle of the way that things worked most of the way through my life. I feel like shit. I confess something. As soon as I don't feel like shit anymore, I immediately go back to doing what, the, what it was that I was doing before. You know, all the way through my, through my drinking and my addiction, it was kind of, that was a pattern. Um, so I told my mom, and, I, and it was funny because I felt relief. I didn't feel guilty anymore. And a couple of days later, I got drunk for the first time. So, you know, same thing. My mom didn't tell my dad. So my dad was always the one that was like, oh, I'd catch me smoking cigarettes. And he'd go try and find the place where I was smoking and like try and get the cigarette machine taken out of the place. Like he had to fix it. My mom was like, oh, that's okay. So I got drunk over at this dude's place. And I, for the first time, felt like my skin fit. I didn't feel like the awkward kid with learning disabilities. I didn't feel like I didn't have too many friends. I didn't feel scared. Um, and it was almost like for the first time in my life, I felt like I had found my natural state of being. And I don't know if anybody else can relate to that because I know a lot of people drink or use, you know, normal people, um, not that normal people smoke crack rec recreationally or whatever, but you know, that, that place that I found was where I just wanted to stay. Um, and that was pretty much constantly what I sought, after, sought for after that. Now, at the same time, when you have two parents that are drug and alcohol counselors, getting drunk was difficult. Um, you know, if I came home bombed, my dad would have known, by the way, the key hit the lock. Um, so I spent a lot of time not at home. I spent a lot of time out. Um, when I got my driver's license, that just kind of fueled it even more. Um, now, again, at the same time, in between... 15 and 17, there were suicide attempts, there was um, psych ward stays, there was medication after medication after medication, there was diagnosis after diagnosis, um, and just more and more drinking and using, and it got really nuts. Um, I got removed 17 years old. Um, the school district, Connorweiser School District, the state and a couple of other people were involved after some more criminal shit happened to try and have me turned over to war to the state. Um, they tried to have me taken out of my house. They tried to have me taken away. And it ultimately ended up that my dad convinced them to let me stay there on, you know, kind of a probational thing as far as them checking in and all the wraparound counseling and all the rest of the shit. Um, now, at the time, I wasn't drinking and using either. I gotten. Like I said, I got in trouble with some, some shit with the ATF. I was looking at some charges. Um, it got hurt pretty bad, got burned pretty bad with something, and um, it kind of backfired. And my dad managed to convince them to let me stay in the house, stay with him. Um, my mom was basically taken out of the picture at this point. She lost the house, she lost everything. Um, and, I stayed sober for a little while. I stayed sober for, I think it was like a year. 
Um, got my shit together, got my grades together, managed to not get turned over to Ward of the State. And the one agreement that my dad came to with the school district was they would pass me for my second year of ninth grade if I never came back to that school. You know, um, they just didn't want to deal with me anymore. And um, so I didn't come back. I ended up going, I, they sent me to the school in Reading, which was one of the schools where if you brought a gun to school, you go to timeout for like two hours and then you go back to class. Like it was not, it was just, there was constant fights. Like I thought like, thank God, fuck this place. I'm done with this school. And then like first, the first day I'm out there and I'm just constantly in fights. You know, I'm one of the only white kids in the school. Like it wasn't good. Um, but I did 10th and 11th grade there. And by that point I was using and drinking again. Um, and the couple of kids that I became friends with there were the guys that I was going and picking up and we were just getting high and we were either drunk or high most of the time. Um, and again, I found that natural state of being and I was 19. Um, let me rewind. I got caught at 18, or I was 17, almost 18, when I was partying and drinking with these kids. I got caught at school, and I ended up doing the Florida spin dry. And I didn't go to one, I didn't go to Renaissance. I went to some other place down near Palm Beach. It was Del Rey. And I spent almost a year down there. Um, and I did what I typically do. I was lazy. I couldn't hold a job. Um, I was entitled. I conned everybody else into paying my rent. I did everything I could to manipulate and connive so that I could stay down there. But at the same time, I wasn't making any money or doing anything. So when it was all said and done, I came home. Um, and came home, got a job. Um, and I ended up relapsing. Um, and I took a bunch of pills. Um, I went on, a, I only went out on a three day run. I was 19, went out on a three day run, uh, drank way too much, popped pills and ended up in the ER. And the wake up call for me was, it wasn't fun anymore. I didn't get what I wanted out of it. Um, I just, it, it wasn't working. And I ended up in the ER and the doctor came in and said, you can't do this shit, you're gonna die. Like the amount of pills that you took, everything else, you're gonna, it, it's gonna kill you. And I remember having that flash thought of like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, this is my life. Like, this isn't what I want to be. This isn't where I want to be. Like, I felt like a piece of shit that had just trashed most of my teenage years. Um, and I sat there and the doctor walked out and, and all of a sudden that, that need kicked in and I tried to leave to go get more. And my dad was walking in as I was walking out. Um, and I remember just sitting that night, you know, it's now I'm 42, this is 19 years old. So I remember like the cliff note highlights of most of this shit. And some of it might be a little out of order because it doesn't, I, I've done the work, so it's not always on my mind anymore, you know. Um, I just remember sitting that night, I remember crying, and it was the first time I remember crying in a long time because I hadn't had all this shit with, with the screaming and the yelling and all that shit, I didn't feel much. And I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, but I was pretty fucking numb for a while. Um, like kind of to the point where I just wanted to feel something a lot of the time. And I think that's where a lot of the drinking and drug use came into play because it was the only time that I felt safe and felt comfortable enough and could actually feel semi-human. Um, and I just remember bawling my eyes out to my dad. I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I just, I, I can't keep doing this. You know, I, I'm, I'm 19 years old. I felt like a failure already, you know, and now I look back like, being, being as old as I am now, I look back at 19 and, and the first thing I think when I look at a 19 year old most of the time, no offense to you younger guys, but is you're not supposed to have a fucking clue. 
You know what I mean? You're still trying to figure everything out. Um, and I got a 20-year-old daughter right now who's going to Alvernia, who, God love her, was a great student, is in nursing school, it, you know, just a great kid all around. Can't believe she came for me. Um, and she's partying it up. She's drinking. I know she's drinking. I know she's doing all the rest of this shit, and good for her. You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't raise her to make that a demon. I raised her so that she knows what her chances are of being an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I let her go find out for herself. And if she needs help, she knows she's comfortable enough to be able to come to my wife and I and say, listen, I'm fucking up, you know, and that's what I want. I want her to feel safe enough to come to me and not feel like, you know, I'm the bad guy. Um, so anyway, I got sober the first time in 19. It was it was uh, September 19th, 1998 was the last time I took a drink. Um, and I did all of the things my first year that they tell you not to do. I went after every girl in the rooms because there was, there was a few younger girls in the rooms. I went after every girl. Um, I hung out with the people that were still drinking and using. I ran around, um, you know, didn't do the steps, got a sponsor and name, and I found the one guy who didn't work the steps so that I could say that I had a sponsor, and, and it's cool, Pete's my sponsor, you know, everything's good. Oh yeah, Pete's a great guy, yada, yada, yada. You know, and I didn't have to do any work. Um, and I stayed that way for probably three years, just chasing tail, running all over the place, having fun. Now, I did a few things right. One was I latched onto a group of young people in AA, and we stayed pretty tight, you know, and I watched a lot of other guys do that nowadays. Um, the, the power of a home group, the power of fellowship is a pretty strong thing early on in AA. Um, you know, the other stuff a lot, a lot of the time, in my experience, comes after the fact, because when I first got here, if you'd have walked in and been like, hey, you're powerless, I'd have been like, no, I'm not. You know, what about God? He ain't real. You know, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't care. I just spit on the ground in front of you sooner than talk to you about God when I, when I was 19 years old, you know. Um, so I got tied in with a bunch of, of younger people. Um, and there was probably, my first year, there was about 20 of us. Um, and I was, working in the, I was working in the kitchen at Karen. I got my job back up there. So I was around a lot of people that were, you know, they still had, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, one of the buildings that used to be where the church service at Karen used to be, used to be when Father Bill did it, there was the old halfway house next door. And I used to go up there after work and I'd hang out with the guys at Karen. Um, like I was constantly, I, I made sure that I was surrounded with people in recovery, um, or at least people that were getting sober. And, um... I got a real wake up call again because I buried probably at least 10 of those people the first year I was sober. You know, they, they'd get out and then you'd call or somebody would call and be like, yeah, they found her dead with a needle in her arm in the alley. Or they, you know, remember we went to breakfast with so-and-so on Sunday. Yeah, well, they found her dead Monday morning, you know. Um, and, I, and I stayed sober. So first three or four years, chasing tail, ignorant, just ornery. And, and some of you guys come to the Thursday night meeting, like I'm loud, I'm obnoxious, I scream, I yell, I have fun, I talk in the meeting, I'm still not completely well-rounded sometimes. Um, but I was, I was just ignorant to life, like I was still kind of that kid that didn't, that just didn't, couldn't see past here. Um, but I stayed sober, and again, this is one of those my experience things, I, you know, in my experience, if you stay sober, if you keep coming around, if you keep being willing to do the work, you'll eventually get to that point. You know, if you keep walking the road, you'll get to where you need to go. 
sometimes people pick it up right away. You know, thank God for, you know, good for you if you walk in Alcoholics Anonymous and it's day one and they're like, here's your book. And you're like, yeah, I've arrived. And you're just freaking sainthood just all the way through. That wasn't my experience. Um, you know, so I got sober. Um, I grew up. I eventually, about four years sober, um, chasing all the tail. I got a girl pregnant who I had absolutely no interest in marrying or being with, but I tried to do the honorable thing, so I married her. Um, hence the 20-year-old daughter that's currently going to college, um, who I love dearly. That's, I've never regretted her. Um, tried marriage. Marriage didn't work. Got divorced. Um, couple of other things in the interim and the one thing that I did pick up somewhere along the way was a half decent work ethic um, instead of being unemployable instead of being a kid I realized um, that I needed I needed to start taking care of something bigger than me you know and I, and having that having that little girl was a real big wake-up call and I've talked to it's funny one dude that I was with at the meeting last night he and I had a similar conversation a couple of years ago when his daughter was born um, you know, that day that she was born, I woke up and that was the first time I realized that there was something out there that was bigger than me and more important than me and didn't come first. I didn't come first in my life anymore. Um, and it was the first time that I realized that I needed, I needed to cowboy up. I needed to grow up and I needed to stop being a kid and I needed to start doing something different. Um, and I did. Um, and a funny thing happened. I eventually got sober. I eventually, you know, and when I say got sober, I don't mean putting the drink down. Like I, I ended up getting in touch with a guy after a couple of years and I had a couple of sponsors and I was five and a half years sober and I, and I got hooked up through, it's funny. It was the guys that started this meeting because we had, that was the home group and the tight knit crew of guys that I was with at that point. Um, they had a guy that was sponsoring one of them that lived down in Baltimore and this guy had a message and talked about God like he just had lunch with him. And I'd never heard that before. And I ended up through, you know, I ended up having like a, a mini breakdown um, and ended up sitting down with this guy and I heard his story and it was one of the most powerful things I'd ever heard. And this guy took me through the steps and he took me through the steps pretty quickly. Um, I had been through the steps with a prior sponsor um, and this guy took me through them in a different way. And, and I came to a couple of understandings going through the 12 steps that time. And one of them was, you know, when I first got sober, put, put it to you this way, I first got sober, you get, you got to do this work and you got to do the fourth step and everything seemed so regimented and everything was more about the legibility and how everything looked and how bad the shit was on paper. And, oh, am I doing this right? And is everything this and is everything that? And I felt like I had like a certain set of guidelines that I had to fall under. And if I didn't do it the right way, I was going to get drunk. Um, and what I've come to find out years down the line is it's not about that. It's about me doing something different. And like I said, walking that road and getting to a place where I have a relationship with something bigger than me. And it gives me the opportunity to be somebody different for some other people. And that has nothing to do with the shit that I write down on paper. It's not about that. It's about what I do differently in my life and about me being willing to do some other things. You know, and if you guys haven't found a sponsor, and if you're not doing that stuff, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, but long story short, so I, I you know, got divorced. Um, a couple of bad relationships later, I had sworn off women. Um, I ended up with, yeah, that worked out great. Um, so this, this girl with pink hair shows up at Wilshire the one night, um, wearing a mini skirt that came down to about here, 
leather boots, um, kind of a goth chick, and wouldn't leave me alone for like six months. And I've been with her for about 17 years now. Um, so it actually has worked out great. I have two more kids. Um, I got nine-year-old twins that are hell on wheels, you know. Um, my son, I have boy and girl twins. My, my son is pretty much on his way to being me. Like the behaviors, everything else is pretty much uncanny and it takes everything I have some days to stay patient with him. Um, so, you know, to sum up the next couple of years, I went through and ended up in a couple of different sponsorship families, had a couple of different sponsors. I've been through the 12 steps in a lot of different ways and that kind of adds to that whole thing of like, you know, you hear things a bunch of different ways, you start to realize that those roads all take you to the same place and you start to understand what the principles behind all the shit that's written in that book actually are. Um, it, um, I got a job that I traveled and it became real easy for me to hide and tell people I was on the road and not go to meetings and stopped calling my sponsor. And when I got that job, I had probably five or six sponsees and they dwindled and slowly started slipping away and I didn't give a shit. And because it got to the point where I'm not working a program, so when the phone rings, I don't wanna hear from them anymore. And it's no longer me helping another alcoholic, now it's me having to listen to someone whine on the phone and I have absolutely no interest in doing that. You know, so it got to the point where instead of being grateful and feeling like I was being of service, somebody's calling me and all I want them to do is shut the fuck up so I can get off the phone. And they're calling me for help. They're calling me genuinely looking for change and looking for something different. And all I'm thinking about is me and wanting to call them a pussy because that's how I get. Um, so that shit dwindled. You know, I, I started chasing money. I started chasing prestige. And, and in hindsight, you know, growing up feeling like an absolute failure my entire life, feeling like I actually meant something to a company and was doing good and had some, some ethics, some responsibility, became a foreman for this company, had some, had some, you know, respect. It was something I'd looked for my whole life and I thought I'd found it and chased that instead, you know. Um, and lived that way for a couple of years. Now I ended up 12 years sober, um, no steps, no God, no principles, and uh, was suffering from a good old fashioned case of untreated sobriety. And it, some of the guys were at the meeting last night, you heard me say, what, say that, there, there's not much worse than that. Um, you know, being sober, having no active solution for a real alcoholic is a horrible thing. I don't, I don't deal well with that if I'm not doing something. Um, so I ended up having a nervous breakdown. I, I had it bad, like full out panic attacks again, um, severe depression, ended up in the psych ward, um, was given benzos, like it was, it was about 12 years sober. 12 years sober. And funny thing happened. I ended up up at, uh, I had sponsored um, the COO of Karen Foundation. I sponsored his kid and he'd become a good friend of mine too. And some through, through like 15 phone calls that made it to him that I wasn't doing okay and, and where I'd been and everything that was going on. And he called my wife and said, get him up here now. And I ended up sitting in the relapse unit at Karen Foundation with 12 years of sobriety. And if you want to talk about an uncomfortable conversation, nobody wanted to talk to me because all the guys that had like 14, 15 days came up and like, hey, how you doing? You know, and the first question most guys ask up there is how much time do you have? And I'm like 12 years and they would just uh, and like walk away, you know, um, and God, God love that man, because it gave me just enough time to actually sit and just decompress. And I ended up 
going through uh, the breakthrough program, I ended up actually, that was, that was kind of the start of me seeking some of the mental health help that I needed um, and getting some of that stuff under control. But again, I was 12 years sober before I got there, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody, okay, I don't want anybody to leave tonight and be like, okay, 12 years, that's okay, I can fuck this, 12 years sober, I can finally get the help that I need with that, I'll just go to meetings and do all that stuff till then. Um, that's where I needed to be and that's, it was my time to do something different. Um, so I, I left, I went back to meetings for a while, I got actively involved in doing the program again, got a new, I, you know, went back to my sponsor um, who he knows well too, you know, got back into doing the work, got back into the book and stayed sober for a couple more years and went right back to the job again a couple of years later and just drifted right back out of AA, you know. Um, and it was convenient because everybody that I knew that had been sober for a long time knew I had the job and, oh, next, no, nobody knew. Um, and the other end of that is, is I'm not half as important as I think I am. I think I'm being like sneaky and conning and I'm hiding and doing, nobody fucking cares. You know what I mean? Um, I've worked myself out of people's lives and I realized later that I'd been living on the fringe of other people's lives and wasn't an active part of it for a long time. You know, um, it wasn't that I was sneaky. It was that I just dealt myself out of other people's lives and other people's circle of friends and other people's, you know, and having those people in my life. I, I got rid of it. Um, so I was about 16 years sober, and um, got into lifting, was about 35 pounds heavier than I am now, and I ended up, after about six months of doing work the right way, didn't get into doing the bad shit and doing all that stuff, I blew out two discs in my neck, and um, compressed a couple nerves. My right arm was all but dead for a couple of months, and ended up having to get surgery. Um, now, in the meantime, my mom that I was telling you guys about had gone through, she bailed when I was like 12, moved to Arizona, was living in homeless shelters for most of, you know, a long time. Um, she died of cancer a couple of months after the whole thing happened with my neck. Um, and it was, it was kind of a whirlwind of events because she died of cancer. Um, my brother was in treatment, so we couldn't have a service for her because he couldn't leave treatment to go to mom's funeral. Um, and I had surgery and they gave me the pills and I was it. I was done. Um, they gave me the perks, they gave me the benzos, they gave me everything else because um, the surgery caused some nerve damage and I had a real bad recovery. And um, so I'm taking pills like it's going out of style now. That wife that I told you guys about that I was with for, that I've been with for 17 years now, she and I made a pact when we first got together, that if the other person drinks, that's it, the relationship's over. <clears throat> Which I think is hysterical when I hear people say that nowadays, because you never know what you're going to do until you get there. Um, and she came home one night and said, you know what? My mom has a couple of shots of whiskey instead of uh, the pills, and she said it helps a lot better than the pills do. And I was like, sign me up. Like, here's my green light. You know what I mean? After all this, we're going to, you know, we'll split up. The other person drinks, yada, yada, yada. And in hindsight, I found out afterwards when I finally sobered up again, um, she was so desperate because she was, she, every day she came home and was afraid of finding me dead. You know, I was on, I was on, I was taking so many pills that I was just, I, like I, I, we had, we had issues for about a year after I got sober too, because I was in a blackout all the time from all the benzos. And there was entire conversations in like weeks where we 
dealt with shit, talked about shit with the kids. And I was a, just a gigantic blank spot. So she, she was like, you know, my mom has whiskey. And the desperation that a woman that had, she had at the time, I had 16 years, she had 12. And a woman with 12 years coming home and telling her husband that she had only known in sobriety that drinking was a good idea, that's, that's horrible. The fact that she ended up in that place because of me still hurts. Um, but it, it gave me the green light and I started drinking again. And at my, I, I made an honest effort at first to use it for pain. And that lasted about three days. Um, within a couple of months, I was drinking two fists of Jameson a night. Um, and it wasn't, there wasn't anything neat about it. It wasn't classy drinking. It was, I'm putting my kids to bed earlier and earlier. I'm angry at my family because they're interfering with my drinking. I'm pounding a beer glass filled up with Jameson to start my night. And I'm not even starting drinking until seven o'clock. I'm drinking until five o'clock in the morning. I'm going and getting dressed and going, driving to Philadelphia or New Jersey, still in a blackout, basically bouncing my work truck off of Jersey barriers. Um, that's what, that's what 16 years of sobriety taught me, you know, that I could, you know, let me rephrase that. I learned a lot of valuable stuff in the time that I was sober before, but none of that did shit to prevent me from ending up back at that place. Um, that's, that's where I was basically at when I was drinking. Um, and I was getting more and more violent. I was getting nastier and nastier. I never, I never raised a hand to my wife and kids, but I was real. I was, I was getting angrier and angrier, more abusive on a daily basis. And the hardest thing I had to, to deal with after I got sober, because I did get sober again. Um, you know, my wife basically came to me the one day and was like, you're either done or we're done. And I don't know why, but as much as they tell you getting sober for somebody else doesn't do it, that was what I needed to hear when, when I heard it. Um, you know, I had a wife, I had kids, I owned a house. Um, I changed jobs at this point to a different job, making a lot more money. Um, so some things were actually going in, in the right direction. Um, and luckily I work in a field where alcoholism is completely acceptable and they knew that I was drinking and doing all that shit, but because the job was getting done, they didn't care. You know, so I wasn't in danger of losing that job. Um, but I decided to sober up because I kind of liked her and kind of liked the kids. You know, that seemed like a decent idea to, to try and stop, you know. And, and, and I remember for like the first couple of months thinking, you know, I'll do this until she backs off and until things cool down and I'll go right back to doing what I was doing, you know. Um, and I came back to AA, and I remember this was one of the first meetings that I came back to. I remember talking to you, talking to Chris, like, it was like four days. And I was just angry and just a mess. And, um, you know, I got sober again. I started, I started reluctantly at first, I started doing the work again. And one of the things that was hard for me to overcome was I still had in my head, I had so many years sober. I know this book, and I do. I, I can probably tell you the pages I can quote, I can argue shit out of that book, you know, could have when I first came back too. So I thought I knew it all and getting over that and, and getting to work with a different sponsor. Um, that was one thing I needed beat out of me was the fact that it doesn't matter what I know in that book because I ain't doing shit about it. Any of, I ain't doing shit with it in any area of my life. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that was missing and there was a lot of stuff that I needed to relearn. And it's, and it's, uh, 
I have a lot of different views on a lot of things in Alcoholics Anonymous that I used to think was really neat in AA. And one of those, you know, a few of those things are, you know, you walk into a meeting, there's, you'll, you'll find certain meetings around here where everybody, where you walk in and everybody's goddamn big book glows in the dark from all the highlighting and all the studying and all the rest of that shit and all the pages are worn out. And that doesn't impress me anymore. I used to think that people were really sober if they had that type of thing. And all I realized was is all it really takes is a highlighter and a little bit of flipping pages and you can be fucking brilliant just like some of those people are. And some of those people might have really good sobriety. Um, but my dad was actually the one that changed my mind on that because he said as soon as you highlight it and as soon as you start writing in that book, nothing can change. You can't read that book the next time and something might mean something different. It means exactly what it meant that time that you highlighted it, and that's the only thing you're going to see from now on when you go through that book. And I, know, and I know for a fact, because I've read that book again numerous times, and I always find something different that I've read a hundred times, but now it means something different because I'm different. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that have changed in my life today. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm 42 and I'm not 20 years old anymore. You know, I've, I've just settled down a lot. Um, you know, but I got sober, you know, I started doing this stuff again. I got a new sponsor. Um, I was working in North Jersey for probably my first year of sobriety and I was driving home from North Jersey every Monday night to go to the big book study at my sponsor's place. Um, and there again, I got tied in with another sponsorship family. Um, and that man's still my sponsor today. He lives in Seattle and I talk to him probably once every couple of weeks, but he's still my sponsor and we still do the work. You know, I do a 10 step on a daily basis that I exchange with a bunch of different guys, including him, you know, and I can tell you that that relationship's grown to be a lot different having been through the work than it was when I first got sober. It was, it was somebody teaching me how to do stuff and someone helping me to get sober and somebody doing what, you know, we do, you know, basically putting my hand in God's and taking a step back and helping me learn how to get back on that path. And now he's a friend. And now he's a friend in recovery and he's somebody that I talk to. And when he's struggling, he reaches out and talks to me. It's not the same as it used to be where it's like I felt like the kid and he's the adult and I'm looking up to him and praise be, you know, he's just a drunk, just like me. And he can be just as ignorant as I am too, you know. Um, I'm still working the same job. I'm still traveling. I'm still doing a lot of that stuff. And one thing... I have gotten, had to get used to, is staying in touch with other alcoholics, still being present in my own life even when I'm not here, even when I'm staying in a hotel and I'm in Nashville or I'm in Texas or I'm wherever I am, I still usually make two to three phone calls a day. You know, I still talk to other drunks, I still go to meetings, I still hold, I, you know, I still make sure that there's people in my life that hold me accountable to continue to do those things on a daily basis. Um, I'm not perfect, and to be honest with you, I don't want to be. You know, there's a lot of riffraff, there's a lot of bullshit over the years that I've cut out of my life, and some of it's in, the, in, in this program. Um, there's a lot of things that I see as false. There's a lot of things that I don't incorporate in my program just because it's, it's a lot of almost like corporate shit that goes along with this. You know, I, I try and keep this as simple as humanly possible because at the end of the day, this comes down to a couple of different things, and the rest of it is bullshit as far as I'm concerned. I got I to gotta change by doing the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have to get close to God. I have to share that with other people in order to hold on to it. And that's between me and God. 
you know, because as much as there's political shit that goes on behind the scenes with service and everything else, you guys will probably get involved in an Alcoholics Anonymous. At the end of the day, this started with one guy getting in touch with a higher power, helping someone else and helping them learn how to carry a message to somebody else. And as long as I'm willing to do that on a daily basis, the rest of the shit's gravy, you know? Um, and if I truly have faith that there's something out there that's bigger than me, that's going to help me to stay sober and help me to do something different in my life, then what other people think is acceptable for me doesn't mean a goddamn thing. You know, what other people think I might say in a meeting isn't okay, sorry. You know, um, my story's my story. The way I act is, is, is me, you know. Um, I can honestly tell you guys I'm grateful to be sober today. You know, there's, there's still a lot of shit that I've had to deal with. We were talking last night about life on life's terms in the meeting. And I got to thinking about that when I got home last night because one of the things that I was sharing is that life on life's terms is something that you start to discover as you go along through your sobriety because you don't necessarily get to appreciate learning how to deal with life on life's terms until you've had to deal with that specific thing on life's terms. You know, um, like I said, I buried my mom. I buried two-thirds of my family in the last 10 years. You know, my mom's side of the family, all cancer. You know, I've dealt with a lot of death. I've dealt with a lot of tragedy in my family. My brother is killing himself, drinking off and on. Um, you know, who I've spoke to one time in the last year. Um, and I heard he's sober again. And if he is, God love him. I hope so. You know, um, just, you know, dad, dad got diagnosed with Parkinson's, you know, a lot of shit, you know, a lot of bad stuff. And at the same time, there's a lot of good stuff. My wife just got her doctorate a couple of weeks, what, two months ago. You know, she's a doctor, the same chick that walked in with the mini skirt and the black boots and all the rest, you know, the, the freaking gothic chick just, just graduated, you know, as she's a psychologist. Funny, and it's funny too, because I tell people that, and then, you know, you hear me share my story about growing up with two therapists, his parents, and my wife's a psychologist, you know, makes sense. Um, but she, you know, one of the agreements that we have is she doesn't do that shit to me. You know, she loves me regardless of what my faults are and vice versa. You know, um, I can tell you guys one of the other great things that I've learned how to do in Alcoholics Anonymous is how to have healthy relationships with other people. You know, um, one, of the, one of the byproducts of me being able to stop looking at, you know, to, to stop living my life like this, looking at only me all the time, is I've started to learn how to love and appreciate and care about other people and how to treat other people and be selfless towards them. You know, and that's that's the only way I can ever see having a relationship with any other human being, not just my wife. Um, you know, if I'm constantly out for me, you know, that's where I stay. You know, I was talking about all the depression and the anxiety and all the rest of the shit. I had that sponsor that um, I was talking to you guys about. The one sponsor that I had along the way explained something to me which made the most sense I've ever heard about anxiety and depression. He said anxiety and depression are two things. He said... Depression is usually too much time spent thinking about yourself and the regret and, and all of the bullshit in your life. He said anxiety is usually too much fear and thinking about yourself and being worried about the future and everything else that's going on, you know? And he said that. He said, when have you ever been, when have you ever been depressed or overly anxious and panic-stricken when you weren't thinking about yourself? And I've, I, I try and remember that over the years, you know, I still had my bouts, but I can tell you that I haven't ended up in a psych ward or had a panic attack in, in probably 11 years. Um, you know, I just don't live my life certain ways anymore. Um, the job that is still, I'm, you know, I've, I've worked on some really prestigious projects over the year. I've run work, 
you know, in a lot of really cool places, done a lot of really cool jobs. And I can honestly tell you guys that it's just a job today. It's not who I am. Um, you know, I almost quit a couple of months ago just because of some bullshit that was going on. And I can tell you, I probably would have been just fine if I did. You know, I don't live that way anymore. It's not, it's not, it doesn't make me who I am. It doesn't make me something better than I always thought that I was. Because I thought I was a piece of shit. You know, it's how we spent most of my childhood. I was a piece of shit. Everybody else was better than me. I was worthless. I had no value whatsoever. I was a piece of shit. I did, you know, not doing my homework. I got suspended and it set me back like a day because I had nothing else to lose. And I was content living my life that way. And I can tell you guys, you know, I got a lot to lose in my life today. And I love every part of it. You know, um, my cup runneth over is the best way I can put it. You know, and I'm not even talking about like the house and all the rest of that shit. I got two kids that just adore me, you know. Um, I never thought I'd have anybody in my life that felt that way about me. You know, the third one likes me, she's, but she's 20 and she's going to school. So that's, I'll settle for her liking me at this point. I think it's going to be a couple more years till she comes back around to the, to the adoring me again. Um, you know, but there's, there's just, all I did was suit up and show up and do what it, people told me to do. And when I got sober this time, that's, that's all I could do. You know, somebody suggested to me, if you just shut the fuck up long enough to just, just, when somebody tells you to do something, do it. Pretty simple. And as long as you do that and you take the next step and you keep moving your feet, it doesn't matter where your head's at. Your head will start to get to where your feet are. You know, and when, when it was put that way to me, I felt like something was going to change and I felt like something was going to get better. You know, um, I found a relationship with a higher power through talking, not through a book, not through reading. You know what I mean? I can read somebody's autobiography, but it doesn't mean that I have a relationship with them. You know, I had to build a relationship by talking and by searching, you know, um, and I have a great relationship with a higher power today, too. You know, um, I can still get shitty. I can still yell and scream. You know, I'm, I work. I'm, I'm an iron worker for uh, for a company and I work in New York. I work in Philly and I have a lot of confrontations sometimes. I still have to freaking scream and yell and I still have to be that guy sometimes. Um, you know, there's a couple of hats that I have to wear. At the same time, I do only what's necessary for my job. I do only what's necessary in order to complete a project. I don't freak out. I don't scream. I don't yell. I don't attack people. I don't do the same shit that I used to do. You know, I do what I have to do in a management style. You know, um, and these are all things that I've learned, tools that I've learned from being here. You know, um, I had to live long enough to get the experience to have that type of shit. You know what I mean? Like I, I watch newcomers come in the program and they think like they have to suit up and show up. You know, we sit down in a meeting and I have to have arrived. You know, I have to prove to everybody else that I'm okay. You know, it took me a long time to be okay. You know, and I was sharing it last night. Sometimes there's still days where I'm not okay. I fell asleep on the couch last night watching football after the meeting. And I woke up on the couch this morning, still had my shoes on from last night. I was 20 minutes late for leaving for work. Um, my watch was dead. My phone was almost dead. And I didn't even know what day it was or what time it was. And you want to talk about like fucked. I woke up and that's not like I have a regiment and I have a routine that I do in the morning that gets me kind of going and gets me started. And that was not happening. You know, um, I still have those days. And I, was, I wasn't right until about like 9.30 this morning, we took coffee and I had to go sit in my truck and kind of get everything redirected because I was not on that even keel. You know, I still have those moments. But at this point, I'm starting to ramble and the meeting's all but over. So I'm gonna leave you guys with that.
Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.